you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 11, the Gospel of Luke chapter 11. I was both challenged and encouraged the other day. I watched in on the uh, part of the prayer meeting of my, what I call my Antioch, as it were, my home congregation in Balamone, in Northern Ireland, and I was watching on as they were gathering for prayer last Thursday. And in the announcements, the Reverend David Park made mention of, again, the needs in Ukraine. They're obviously feeling it. Uh, very keenly in Europe, more so perhaps than we are here. And there's a lot of movements of peoples, as you're well aware. Well, they have some contacts there, and that church is taking in, I think, 28 from Ukraine. And so he's going to have a family of seven in his home, and then there are others that are going to be scattered through the various families of the church there. So as it comes to mind, you may pray for the church there, Hebron and Balamone, for the Reverend Park and that which they're endeavoring to do to alleviate some of the suffering and the great trials that these are the Lord's people, these are some contacts that they have, and they are in great need. So we're thankful for the hands and feet of Jesus Christ in this instance and pray God will use it for His good and for His glory. He does that, you know. You know, we see the unsettling of nations and the the dispersion of peoples, and yet we read in the Word of God how, how God has used that time and time again. And sometimes people get unsettled by that, and they think this is, you know, they don't like what they're seeing. But God is doing it. God is sovereignly doing it. Just as He did when you read Acts chapter 8 and other passages, whether it be even the, the challenges of the Jews in the Old Testament and God taking them away. Uh, but God does this. He's in control. And we pray that it might be for the furtherance of His truth, just as we've been singing, let there be light. Well, we're in Luke chapter 11 tonight, and we will read from verse 29 through verse 36. We have considered the verses 29 through 32 already. Two weeks ago, when we were last here, we want to consider the verses 33 through 36, but just to help with the context and again hope that most of you are aware of what we've been dealing with here in Luke chapter 11, and back to verse 14 where you see the, the miracle that was done, the casting uh, a devil out of a man that was dumb, and the response of that, the varied response of those that were around, and so the Lord is addressing them. So verse 29, Luke 11, verse 29, let's hear the word of the Lord. When the people were gathered thick together, he began to say, This is an evil generation. They seek a sign. There shall no sign be given it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For as Jonah was a sign unto the Ninevites, so shall also the Son of Man be to this generation." The queen of the south shall rise up in the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the utmost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, a greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh shall rise up in the judgment with this generation and shall condemn it. 
For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, a greater than Jonah is here. No man, when he hath lighted a candle, putteth it in a secret place, neither under a bushel, but on a candlestick, that they which come in may see the light. The light of the body is the eye. Therefore, when thine eye is single, thy whole body also is full of light. But when thine eye is evil, thy body also is full of darkness. Take heed, therefore, that the light which is in thee be not darkness. If thy whole body, therefore, be full of light, having no part dark, the whole shall be full of light, as when the bright shining of a candle doth give thee light. Amen. May the Lord bless His Word and give us insight and understanding in it tonight as we look at it. Let's pray and seek the Lord, beloved. Let's ask for His help and blessing. God, as we turn to these verses, we pray that there may, may be the not just the communication of information, but the experience of the presence of God in this place. Lord, take the preacher, break me, melt me, mold me, and fill me with thy Spirit. And for those in this gathering and assembly, we ask God, according to their several needs, that those needs, each one may be met. Again, Lord, we pray, please give us a message, a message from God. May we all know it. May we sense it. Drive back the enemy. Awaken us amidst the frailty of the flesh. And help us, Lord, to rightly receive the engrafted word that is able to save our souls. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Ask the boys and girls tonight, if you've ever tried to imagine not being able to see, the inability to see, I don't know if you've ever thought about it, ever considered it, we sang Blessed Assurance tonight, and we are reminded every time we see Fanny Crosby's name that this woman had to deal with blindness for the vast majority of her life. Do you ever think about it? Do you ever think about the removal of the ability to see, whether that be through darkness or blindness. Imagine, for example, all of a sudden, all the lights go out. The sun doesn't shine. There are no flashlights, no candles. You can't see. You literally cannot see a thing. And imagine that darkness goes on then indefinitely. How would you feel? How would your life be? I mean, if it was to happen in this moment, how would you get home? If everyone came under darkness, if everyone here, before they left, had no ability to see, process it through the mind now, wondering, how, how would we get home? Life would be very different if we could not see. And so it is spiritually. If we are in spiritual darkness, life is very different. Without spiritual sight, without spiritual perception, everything is different. 
We think differently. We act differently. We speak differently. And generally we are even motivated by different things. Different to those that have and possess spiritual sight. And for those that are in front of Jesus at this present time, you can see in verse 29 that there's a great crowd there when the people were gathered thick together. There's this great crowd that have assembled around the Lord Jesus Christ, and the context is that they are unwilling to receive the light that is being put before them. He has performed a miracle again back in verse 14. We read in verse 15, Some of them said, He casteth out devils through Beelzebub, the chief of devils. And others, tempting him, sought of him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, he begins to speak to them. These people lacked sight, unable to see what others could see. It was of great frustration, no doubt, many times to the disciples to watch on and be utterly amazed at the response of the crowds to our Lord Jesus Christ. They cannot see. And so they are looking at what's happening. They're seeing the miracle performed and they're giving alternate reasons as to why this is happening. It's the devil that's working through him. Others just are kind of saying, well, it's not enough proof that you are who you claim to be. So they're looking for more. But the problem, the problem is with their sight. They, they have a, a sight problem. And so our Lord Jesus has said that there will be a sign. He's not going to uh, cater to their carnal desires in the way that they want. But he says there will be a sign, and we dealt with that last time. This sign is a sign of the resurrection. It will be, again, this, this kind of apex of miracles and of the extraordinary and the life of Jesus Christ. And if they reject that, there's no hope, there's no salvation. So in these verses, and really verses 3 through 36, in one sense are very simple. I did ponder the possibility of dealing with them last time, but the language is a little convoluted. It's a little difficult, and I didn't want to take away from the, the verses prior to it by trying to explain all these verses. So it's simple, uh, and I trust the Lord will bless our consideration of verses 33 through 36 under the title, Christ's Call to Respond to the Light. Christ's Call to Respond to the Light. And it is a call. Verse 35, take heed therefore. Take heed therefore. You read language like that, it is a call. It is an exhortation. It is the preacher standing under recognizing the battle that's going on in the mind of his hearer, and he is trying to penetrate the dullness. He's endeavoring to cut through the distraction, and he is calling upon them, laying hold of the heart as much as possible. Respond. Respond. Take heed. He's not just saying listen to the words. The language take heed is hear it and act upon it in the right fashion. You know that. You know that. You know, whenever when you kids again, you know it, and maybe some of us men know it as well, when we're asked, uh, are you listening to me, or do you hear me? Uh, <laughs> the, the problem really isn't that we haven't heard. The problem is we're not responding to what we've heard. Usually, that's the case. 
That's all it is here. That's all it is here. They're hearing the words. It's not like the language is, is not being heard by them. The words are not reaching their ears. They won't act on what they see and hear, and that is the problem. So Christ issues a call to respond to the light. First, note with me, the light is on public display. The light is on public display. Verse 33, No man, when he hath lighted a candle, putteth it in a secret place, neither under a bushel or a, a basket of sorts, but on a candlestick, that they which come in may see the light. I want you to note something first in this. The person indicated. The person indicated. Because we, we read verse 33. Some of us, I imagine, are thinking, well, this language sounds familiar. You'll find it in Luke chapter 8, similar language, verse 16. I think it is there where you'll find language similar to this. So we've already looked at it there. No man, when he hath lighted a candle, covereth it with a vessel, or putteth it under a bed, but setteth it on a candlestick, that they which enter may see the light. But even more well known than that is back in Mark or Matthew, rather, chapter uh, five. Matthew chapter five. You go to the Sermon on the Mount just to see the language there in verse fourteen through sixteen. Matthew five verse fourteen. You see, at the heart of this, similar language. So Matthew 5, verse 14, Ye are the light of the world, a city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle, but put it under a bushel, and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men, that they may see your good works, and glorify your Father which is in heaven. So our Lord used this language certainly on, on more than one, one occasion, perhaps many occasions, where he describes this. This isn't what you do. You don't light a candle and then cover it. That's not what you do. No one does that. You don't hide it. You don't move it into a place where it's not needed. There's a place where it's needed. You light it and you have it. You, you prop it up and you set it there so that it can be seen. Now, since Matthew 5 is probably the most familiar passage, our way of understanding that gets shaped by Matthew chapter 5. And so you read it again, you know that the emphasis here, the subject that is in view, is you. You're the light. You're the light of the world. And so the intention of the Lord isn't for you to hide your light, to live a monastic life, to run away from the world in such a fashion that the world never see you or interact with you. You're to be in the world. You are to be involved in its affairs, not in its sins, but you're, you're seen, you're perceived. People know you in your neighborhood. You haven't run off and scampered to some place in the wilds of Alaska to get away from everyone and everything. You're, you're, you're not to do that. Christians are not to do that. They are to be publicly known in their communities, shedding forth their light, putting their light before men, verse 16. So, so therefore, we, we understand, verse 15, we're not to hide our light. We're not to run away and keep our light away from the world. We are to give our light to all that are in the house, to all that are in our vicinity. Now, if we understand that text, which we do in that way, when we come to verse 33 of Luke 11, the danger is we immediately kind of 
put the meaning of Matthew 5 into this text. We say, well, the Lord must be dealing with His people and His followers again. And He's telling them that they shouldn't hide their light. But that has absolutely no connection with the context. That's not what He's dealing with at all. And so we read it and we ask ourselves, well, well who then is in view? What is the subject here that is, is giving forth the light and is not to be hidden? And the answer to that is our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the light. John Gill says that these words, quote, seem to design the free, open, and clear ministry of Christ. And I agree. That is the context. These people are standing. They've seen a miracle. They're in denial of that miracle. And Christ is calling them to consider their ways, to repent as others had in the past. And He is reminding them that the light, the light is there before them. He is pointing to Himself as He stands before these sign-seekers and deniers. And He tells them that just as a lamp should be displayed out in the open so that all can benefit from the light, so it is for Jesus Christ. He is, he is there so that men may experience Him, may hear Him, may see Him, and feel the light come upon them. That's what verse 33 is saying. No man, when he hath lighted a candle, putteth it in a secret place, doesn't hide away, neither under a bushel, that's under a kind of bowl or basket, but on a candlestick, that they which come in may see the light. And Jesus Christ is that light, so that as men come to Him, they should see the light. Now, this plays into a prominent theme in John's Gospel. Go to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. This prologue in this gospel is, is powerful, profound. So we read from verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. He's face to face with God. He's there. He's the eternal Son. As you'll find out in verse 14, this Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. So, so this summarizes the problem. Christ comes as light, and men don't receive or accept that light. So you read on, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all men through him might believe. So again, it's not just that the light has come and is on display in the world. God also sends someone else to help point to the light. You know, it's... it's See something in the there's something in the sky, something going across the sky, maybe a, a plane with a sign across it, whatever. Many people won't really see that sign of themselves. What they will see is other people looking up. And their eye follows their eyes. They're like, What are they looking at? And they begin to look up as well. 
And that, that, there is this kind of knock-on effect, domino effect, as, as people see that people are looking in a certain direction, and they're, what are they looking at? And they begin to look that way. It has an influence. It has an influence upon them. It's not just the fact that that thing is there, but it's the influence of those that are looking in that direction. They, they, they draw. There's a magnetism for you to join in. And so Christ doesn't just come as light in the world, but God also sends someone else who's pointing, who's saying, look, the light is here. The light is here. And so everyone's attention is to be pivoted towards Jesus Christ. So God sends a man whose name was John. The same came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Do you see this? It's not hidden. It's not sent to another location. It is on display. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. The world couldn't say that it had no idea. They just wouldn't come to know him or bow the knee before him. He came on to his own, and his own received him not. So you have this theme that commences the gospel of John. And you move on to chapter 3. You see that it continues. John chapter 3, after the Lord's interaction with Nicodemus. In the well-known language of verse 16 and 17, then we come to verse 18. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already. I want you just to think, just, just wasn't my intention to stop here, but just, just think on that. You're here tonight and you don't believe. You're not waiting for condemnation. You're already under condemnation. Why are you under condemnation? Because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation. Here's the condemnation. It's not that they didn't see the light. It's not that the light wasn't before them. Light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be manifest, that they are wrought in God." And you go on to chapter 8, verse 12, where Christ says that He is the light of the world. Again, He's not, not a light hidden. He's a light that's in public display in the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Chapter 12, more language in this theme is dealt with by John. John 12, 44. Jesus cried and said, He that believeth in me, believeth not on me, but on him that sent me. So it's not just me, but it's, if you truly believe in God, you have to believe in me because that's what happens. If you, if, you're, if you really believe in God, you're believing in me and vice versa. He that seeth me, seeth him that sent me. I am come a light into the world, that whosoever believeth in me should not abide in darkness. So this is the person that's indicated in this text. Christ has come before these people and He's shining light into their lives. He is, he is there offering His light, putting it on display by His words and works. 
No man, when he hath lighted a candle, putteth it in a secret place. Not even God. God doesn't do this. Man doesn't do this. Neither does God. You don't light a candle. You don't send the sun into the world as the light of the world and hide him away in obscurity. He is put before the world. So Christ, again, is, he is underlining what he would say later, that these things were not done in darkness. They're not hidden. Everyone knows. Everyone's aware. He has publicly brought his light before men. They which come in may see the light. So, we have the person indicated. We've also the privilege implied. The privilege implied is in those last words. That they which come in may see the light. They can come in. There's no restriction. There's no turning away. There's no indication that you have, you have no right to come in and see this light. The, the fact of the matter is, the light has been lit. The, it's there. It's publicly there for the benefit of all. Just come in and enjoy the light. So Christ is declaring that His light is on public display, but the response of the sign-seekers is basically they're suggesting you're not doing enough. You're not doing enough. Others, tempting Him, sought of Him a sign from heaven, verse 16. They're tempting Him. They, they're, they're, you need to give more. And so in saying that language, they are denying their privilege. They are refusing that they have the privilege to come and see the light. Jesus says you may come in and see the light. And they are refusing to acknowledge that privilege. They're in denial of Christ's mission. Really what they're saying is either A, what they're saying to Christ and asking for more, more signs, they're saying A, you're not willing to shine your light. All right, Jesus, you're not willing to shine your light. We're asking you for light. So it's, a, it's really by implication saying you're not willing to shine. Or secondly, you lack the ability to shine your light. You're not giving us enough light. Do you lack the ability? So, so, so really that's what they're implying by asking for more signs. He's either not willing or he's not able. That's the charge. That's by implication what they're saying. That's what unbelievers do when they stand or sit confronted with the light and say, it's not enough. Jesus Christ shines his light and they say no. Why do they say no? He's not willing to give his light to me. Or he's not able to give enough light. As if the light of the Son of God was lacking spiritual lumens or however you measure light, flashlights in these days. It's lacking. And Jesus says, no, 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 you have a privilege. You have a privilege. They which come in may see the light. It's there. Come in and see the light. It's right here before you. He's standing before these sign seekers and deniers and doubters, and he's saying, it's right there. I'm here, the light of the world, the Son of God, the Messiah promised. You have no excuse. Don't deny the privilege. Don't act like it's not there. Christ, for the most part, did not preach or perform His miracles 
in the shadows. For the most part, it was, it was there for all to see. Thousands gathered, and they brought their sick by the multitude. And they would press in to wherever he was. Day after day after day after day after day, it was relentless. It was incessant. And you have little statements that he, they brought all their sick on them, and he healed them all. It doesn't give you all the details, just he healed them all. Multitudes. And he preached and he preached and he preached, constantly issuing his word. And he's there publicly. He's shining his light. The privilege is there because men can come in to see the light, but they won't. I ask you, is it any different today to someone, to anyone who is here still in a condition of unbelief? Are you lacking light? Are you? Are you lacking light? Are you suggesting that Jesus Christ is either unwilling or unable to give you the light sufficient? It's been sufficient for others. Many of us here in this room, we, we saw it and we responded, we believed, we trusted, and we continue to trust every day. But you sit there in a condition of unbelief, in your state of privilege, denying your privilege, rejecting it. Almighty God sent the light of the world and put it on a candlestick, raised it up. Waited for the fullness of time, Galatians 4. Waited until the world was at a point that was most conducive to be influenced by the light. Not on times when men didn't travel much or they were hemmed in by localities, but in a time when the world began to be small, when people would traverse the Silk Road and move from east to west and west to east and go to city after city with their wares, when people could go and respond and thousands could see, when, when Jerusalem would be flooded by hundreds of thousands during the feast days, waits for that moment and then puts the light before everyone to see. But they won't respond. At least they will not respond in the positive. Can you say with Paul, can you say with Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, God, who when the, the, the whole creation was void of light, it was darkness that you couldn't even imagine. He commanded the light to come. Let there be light, and there was light. He has shined in our hearts to give the light of what? To give what light? The light of the knowledge of the glory of God that is found in the face of Jesus Christ. It's like you see Jesus Christ, and there it is. The fullness of the Godhead bodily. There's the light the same glory that filled heaven, though somewhat veiled, but it shines. It shines. Have you seen it? Have you seen it? Have you seen the light? Have you? Or should I word it in this way? Because you have seen the light, 
The question is, have you come into the light? Or are you as those referred to in John 3, that you will not come to the light? The light is there. It's on a candlestick. But you won't come to it. You'll stay in the darkness, in the shadows with your sin and your evil deeds, lest they should be manifested. Now, you see, that's what happens when you come to the light. Christ calls men to the light. And as he calls them to the light, they have this, this awful experience. Somewhat traumatic, we might say. Not medically traumatic in that sense, but there, there, there is an experience felt by many that when you come to that light and you see and feel your sin for the first time in a way you've never seen your sin, that's what happens when you come to the light. Your deeds get reproved. The darkness in your heart gets exposed. You, you see, <laughs> I thought I was a good person. I thought I was okay. But when you come to Jesus Christ and His light floods upon you, you, see, you begin to see the shadows of your heart, the wickedness of your life, the sins of your soul. But you see, oh, wonderful power it is when we're made willing in the day of His power. We come to the light anyway. We come and we say, yes, there's all, all these sins. All these sins, but the answer is there in Jesus Christ. I will acknowledge all my sins. I will confess them. I will not hide. Because he that confesses and forsakes his sin has mercy. But not only is the light on public display, the light can be personally seen. It can be personally seen. Verse 34. Progressing in the thought, Jesus says, The light of the body is the eye. Therefore, when thine eye is single, or healthy, or whole, when the eye is functioning as it ought, thy whole body also is full of light. But when thine eye is evil... Thy body also is full of darkness. Jesus declares that the eye is the entry point of light. If your eye is healthy, if it's functioning correctly, the rest of the body enjoys the benefit of that light. You know that. Yeah, it stands to reason. All of your members, your entire body, benefits because the eye lets the light in and then you're able to move and function and act and react based upon a properly functioning eye. That's what Jesus is saying. It's a basic observation of biological function. The light comes in through the eye and it acts as a conduit to give light to the rest of the body. So my hand knows where to move. My feet know where to step. These things become obvious because the eye is functioning. The light floods in through the eye. So a healthy eye then is vital. A healthy eye is vital. So the light of the body is the eye. That's the obvious statement. The light 
comes in through the eye. The, the eye functions as the conduit to give light to the body. Therefore, when thine eye is single, that is healthy, thy whole body is also full of light. It floods in. But when thine eye is evil, thy body also is full of darkness. So, when the eye functions correctly, things are obvious to you. You know, you see a man crossing a busy road. He's about to cross over. Your, your eye functions correctly. You see this person beginning to move towards, if he's about to step out in front of the traffic, and you realize something's not right here. The, the judgment, clearly the eye is not functioning correctly here. And it's taking the whole body, the whole man is about to be put at jeopardy in front of the traffic because the eye doesn't see the danger. And you know there's a problem. That's it in a very practical sense, but even in an ethical sense, we, we experience this too. Every believer, just for example, every believer, every true born-again Christian looks at the subject of abortion. And we, we, I mean, it's obvious to us, life begins at conception. How can the eye not see that? And to hear ethical philosophers reasoning about maybe it, maybe it's at seven weeks. To hear medical professionals determine maybe it's 20 weeks that at that point then it becomes an ethical dilemma and we have to preserve life. Or maybe as it is being more and more pushed, it's not until birth, not until that life is brought out of the womb into the world, then it's murder. But prior, five minutes before, it's not. Now, any Christian here looks at that and says, what are you talking about? That makes zero sense. Rationally, biblically, scientifically, we know life begins at conception. But people, what's wrong with their eyes? What's wrong with their eyes? They, 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 they are clouded. Not by the facts, but by cultural influences, by by the need for scientists to preserve their jobs and their status within their community, because if they really took a right position, they may put in jeopardy their own jobs and their own credibility among at least certain types of people. So their judgment gets clouded. They're unable to see. Or we should say they refuse to see. So it is with the gospel. If men would actually look at the light, they're without excuse. Their conscience bears witness against them that they're sinners. The need for relief for, from that is, is sensed and understood. Men are tormented in their minds more now than ever. And we medicate our way out of it. Or we go before psychologists and psychiatrists. And it's funny, you know... Y y y you take away the real, you always have to substitute. You take away a gift from God, you have to substitute. God gifted. God gifted humanity with His Word. 
He gifted humanity with men to declare the Word. He gifted humanity with the church, where the Word is heard and received and enjoyed. And men begin to vacate the church, run from the church, avoid the church, criticize the church, hate the church, despise the church. And they scuttle off into the little offices of psychiatrists and psychologists and doctors who will medicate them to try and understand the torment of their mind and their souls. They refuse the light. And what Christ, if I'm understanding this correctly, Christ appears here to say that the problem is not one of ability, it is one of morality. What I mean by that is men have eyes and they should be able to see it. So instead of saying, look at verse 34 again, the light of the body is the eye. Therefore when thine eye is whole, healthy, thy body also is full of light. But when thine eye is evil, that, that's, not, that's not really the contrast we might expect. The contrast would be sick. The eye is whole, it sees. If it's healthy, it sees. If it's sick, it doesn't. Cataracts or whatever. But he doesn't use that. He uses the same word he's already used back up in verse 29. This is an evil generation. It appears to deal, therefore, with a moral issue. Man's problem is a moral one. Now, I know you begin to say, well, what about the sovereignty of God, preacher? Isn't, isn't that a factor in all of this? Well, yes, it is. But again, John 3 is one of the chapters that most clearly declares the sovereignty of God. The opening verses of John 3 are one of the strongest places you'll find the sovereignty of God rightly understood. But go back there again. Go to what we already read and what Jesus says in verses 18 and following. We can read verse 19. This is the condemnation. that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light. This is a moral issue. It's not that they don't see the light. It's that they hate the light. Yes, yes, God is sovereign. No one will come except the Father draws. Salvation is of the Lord. But man is responsible. Man is responsible. And that responsibility is clearly placed here. And again, I can't go to the earlier verses of John 3 and argue the sovereignty of God and what Jesus explains there to Nicodemus. But you look at it. The problem isn't ability, it's moral. It's a morality issue. They hate the light. You say, well, they're dead in trespasses and sins. Yes, but they're not. You see here, Jesus isn't saying they're just numb and they don't know what to do. Jesus is saying that they are actively hating the light. They will not come. They will run the other way. Men love darkness rather than light. That's active. That's involved. They are loving darkness rather than light 
And again, everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, verse 20, and neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. This, this is a moral issue. So, again, it's evil. It's not sick. It's evil. You're here tonight. You haven't come to the light. Don't tell me it's because of some fault in God. You don't want to come to the light, at least up to this point. The reason you're not in the light is because you don't want the light. Deal with that. I want you to deal with that. I want you to come face to face because you've sat in this church perhaps for years and you've been flooded in your heart with the understanding of the sovereignty of God, and rightly so. But then you've taken that doctrine and you're excusing your rejection of Christ and saying, well, God just hasn't called me yet. No! No, you're getting it wrong. Every time you've sat in this pew, God has called you. Every time you've sat here, you have received the word that calls you to Christ. And you hate the light. Actively, you hate the light. You will not have the light. You're not a Christian tonight because you don't want the light. Come to terms with that. That's the facts. You don't want it. It's so grieving when you come and you, t- you, you, you meet face to face with someone who says, oh, I'm not a Christian. God hasn't called me. It's, it's not my time yet. <laughs> I mean, just think about that for a minute. I mean, take that perspective. God hasn't called me. And I can't be saved until he calls me. If you really wanted to be saved, you couldn't live your life without feeling the stress of that. You'd be stressed every day. Because what you're saying is, I I would like the light. God just hasn't brought me into the light. The consequences of which are, if I die, I perish eternally. If you really, really were saying, I want the light, he just hasn't called me, you know what you spend your time doing? You get by your bed every morning and every night and you would be begging God with tears, with tears. You'd realize, I can't save myself. I I can't do this, God. And you'd be begging and begging and begging and begging and see, that's it. That's what God had to teach some of us, you know. And we couldn't save ourselves and we, we were left on our knees begging Him to save us. And at that moment, the relief of the gospel came and we seized upon His promise to save the whosoever. And we found relief right there. But don't sit there tonight and say, I'm not, a, I'm not saved because God hasn't called me yet. You're not saved because you're running from the light. That's the facts. Thirdly, the light is powerful in its influence. The light is powerful in its influence. And we see, first of all, it's powerful enough to discern its influence. Verse 35. Take heed, therefore, that the light which is in thee be not darkness. The Lord calls men to, to take stock. The light, therefore, is powerful enough for them to discern whether or not it is really there. Take heed, therefore, that the light which is in thee be not darkness. Now, this, 
This, of course, is peculiar to those that were in that context because they had light. They had a certain measure of light, didn't they? Of course they did. These are Jewish people. They have many verses memorized. Many truths unto them were committed the oracles of God. To them were the fathers and the promises. And as concerning the flesh, Christ came, as we read in Romans 9. This is a privileged people, and they had the word of God. That's the main thing. And they had all the light of the Old Testament. And so they stand there and they think, many of them, and you know that some of the religious leaders were standing there, we know that from other passages, Jesus says, Take heed, therefore, that the light which is in thee be not darkness. In other words, the light that's there right in you now can actually, if you resist my light, compound the darkness that's in your heart. In other words, these people that had light could end up worse off because of their hypocrisy and their rejection of Jesus Christ. They were in danger of abusing the light they had. And so the truth of God's Word, when you do that, turns against you. It turns against you. All of its message of comfort, all the light of comfort that we're the people of God, we be of Abraham's seed, whatever it was that comforted them, all of that comfort all of a sudden turns to judgment. I know we're in the book of Hebrews, but it will be a while before we get to chapter 6. But turn there tonight, just for a minute. Hebrews chapter 6. Here we have some of the warning language of this epistle. Verse 4, Hebrews 6 verse 4. Here's a case of the light becoming darkness. Hebrews 6 verse 4. It is impossible. It is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come. If they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put Him to an open shame. It is impossible if you have all these privileges, all this light, and you fall away, you walk away, you dismiss it, you ignore it, you reject it. It is impossible. Are you hearing it? It is impossible. If you reject the light, you keep on rejecting the light. You keep on refusing the light. It is impossible. Is it being rubbed in? Is it getting there? Is it getting beyond your ears? Beyond your brain? Is it getting into your heart? 
It is impossible. It is impossible that with the light that you've given rejecting it, it is impossible that you might be renewed again onto repentance. That's where, that's similar to the crowd standing before Jesus. A people with light. And he says, take heed therefore. Take heed. Oh, that sounds very like the writer to the Hebrews. He often says this, take heed. Take heed therefore that the light which is in thee be not darkness. Search your heart. Examine the soul. Make sure that that which you've been privileged to enjoy doesn't turn against you. But also, it is powerful enough to dominate in its influence. The light is powerful in its influence, not only to discern it. It's not only powerful enough to discern it. Can we really feel it and experience it? Yes, we can. Do we, can we see whether it's there? Yes, we should be able to. But also, it will dominate in its influence. Verse 36, If thy whole body therefore be full of light, having no part dark, the whole shall be full of light as when the bright shining of a candle doth give thee light. So, the candle sits in the middle of the room, and the light floods the entire room. You know it. Light's here. You put on one light. This place was in darkness, and you turned on one light, even the dimmest of light, it would reach the corners of the room. And what the Lord is saying here is that the light, His light, His person, Jesus Christ Himself, when He comes into the life, He influences the whole man. You won't be in doubt about whether or not the light is in your life. If thy whole body therefore be full of light, if, if the light is being received, if it's coming into the eye and filling the life, the whole shall be full of light. The whole shall be full of light. Every part of your being, every one of your faculties, all aspects of your life will be influenced by it. This is the transforming power of the gospel. It's, it's, it comes in and it takes over. It does. It, it takes over. So, you sit there and you hear the word and, and it can't be that you can be saved intellectually and then saved emotionally later. You can't do that. You can't be saved in, in such a way that you say, well, I'm saved on a Sunday, but not on a Monday. <laughs> you can't compartmentalize it like that. If the light is really in, it floods the entirety of the life. And so if someone's really saved on a on a Sunday, they're really saved on a Monday. And if their intellect has been converted and transformed, then their emotions are as well. Now again, don't get me wrong, it's not to the full degree. When you start dealing with the aspect of sanctification, the influence of the gospel, how it changes the life, does a man receive the light of Jesus Christ and instantly become as holy as he's ever going to be? No. But the entire being will be influenced. And it will permeate more and more every little corner of your life. 
And so you'll come to face to face with this experience in the process of sanctification where you say, I didn't realize that was even a problem or a sin, but, but now the light is flooding in. The, the Word is coming in that's is exposing that area, that shadowy area of my life, and you have to make changes. This is the gospel, men and women. This is what Jesus Christ says. I'm not come just to give you something interesting to talk about. I'm not here just to start some religion that you say I'm a Christian in label. I'm come to transform your life, to revolutionize your existence, to alter your thinking, to change your ambitions. I'm going to help you to understand that it's not about how high you can attain, but how low. That the way up is the way down, as as it were. That, That humility is the way. That it's not by being puffed up that you'll impress God, but it's a broken and a contrite spirit he can't despise. He really he make you realize that it's not about harboring all that's in this life, but it's about dying to this life that you might gain real life. And this is this, this these paradoxes, these transformative truths that he brings into your lives. If the light is really there, then it's really there. There's no denying it. If thy whole body therefore be full of light, having no part dark, the whole shall be full of light. Do you compartmentalize your Christianity, do you? Do you compartmentalize the Lord? You say to him, you can have this little part of my life, but you can't have other parts. You can have my Sunday morning, maybe my Sunday evening, but you can't have other parts of my life and time. Do you do that? Do you do that? I remember a man illustrating it this way. With his, I'll close. It's, it's not really a thing these days. I mean, it's not, you don't see it as much, especially with the open plans of our houses. Our, many homes have become open plan, open space living. But back in the day, if you go back long enough or far enough, uh, homes weren't really like that. They had different rooms and I imagine it would be similar here, but you, if you had a large enough home, often you would find that there is, there is a, a good room. That's what, that's what my grandmother referred to it. She had a good room, right? And you walk into the house, and the first living space on the right there, with the big bay window at the front, that was the good room. And then if you went on the hallway a little bit, there's another room to the right, and that was the, the living room. That was where... My grandfather would read his paper and watch TV and, you know, have lunch or whatever. So there's that little space, and there's that, but no one ever was in that good room. Like, you, you walked in there as a kid, like, you would come in there on a Sunday, but any other time of the week, no one was in the good room. You weren't allowed in the good room. The good room was for special occasions. And so any, any moment when the minister would drop round, as he used to back in the day, it would horrify most of you nowadays, when the minister would just, he would just arrive at your door and you'd look out and you'd say, the minister's there. You would have somewhere for him. And you, you'd bring him, come on, Reverend so-and-so. And you bring him in and you'd, you'd carefully guide him into the good room. And you'd say, would you like a cup of tea? And he would say, sure, that would be nice. And they'd go and you'd scuttle off and bring out the fine china. Again, the china you don't use daily. The special china that sits there. And you bring it out and you make 
tea and you have the teapot and everything else. And any woman back in those days always had something, scones and cakes and biscuits and buns. They had them all. And you bring it in and you sit down and you serve the minister in the good room. And he would ask you about your life and you would tell him and so on. And, but sometimes really, really what we do is that's how we treat the Lord. I mean, they'd be horrified. Some of these moms would be horrified if the minister decided, can I go and look at the rest of your house? <laughs> and the mess, you know, the, the newspapers and the TV magazines all lying all over the, the other space or maybe a whole wall of DVDs you wouldn't want the minister to see that you watch. Be horrified. Take a look around the bedroom or go around and see just the mess and the chaos of the house. You'd be, you'd be horrified. Just so you can keep them in the, in the good room. Keep them there. Then there's no, nothing suspect. And that's the way some people live their Christian lives. There are little areas they let Jesus into, but not the rest. And I'm telling you, that, friend, that's an indication you haven't gotten the gospel. The Christian says... Lord Jesus, take all of me, invade all of me, control all of me. You want His influence, you invite His sweet presence, and every day, every hour, you need His help and His grace and His strength. Jesus says, that's what I've come to do. That's the light I've come to bring. Have you got that light? Do you? Have you received that light? Why not? Why not? What, what's better than the light of Jesus Christ? What's better than the light that takes away the darkness of your sin? What is better? The Lord bless His Word. Let's bow together in prayer. It's an awful thing to live in darkness. And spiritual darkness is the worst of all darkness. There's no darkness like being blind. Blind to your sin, blind to the reality of hell, and blind to the glories in Jesus Christ. I want to ask you tonight, are you saved? Do you really have the light? Do you know the light of the world? Or are you rejecting the light, denying its entrance into your life, trying to find light in life in other places, in other ways, in other means? Again, I issue for the final time tonight, Christ is not, he has not brought his light and cut it off from you. You're running from the light. Our gracious God, we pray that thou wilt have mercy. Come with power upon the hearts of those that especially are still in darkness. And give them no peace. We pray that they would be haunted by the darkness of their soul. We ask that they might come face to face with their own personal rejection of Jesus Christ and the horror that it is impossible that those who have tasted all these privileges 
if they should fall away, if they should walk away from it all, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. May that sober them. May that convict them. And may the loveliness of Jesus Christ and the glory of His light become attractive to them for the first time. May they run to Him for salvation. Give grace. Grace to repent. Grace to believe. Bless us now, Lord, in our fellowship. Hide Thy Word in our hearts. Keep us. Keep us from sinning against it. Give us grace to live for Thee this week. Bless the food prepared and available downstairs. May the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all Thy people now and evermore. Amen.